You're listening to Modern Marketing, a podcast brought to you by Influicity. At Influicity, we build brand communities that drive revenue. Learn more at Influicity.com. On today's episode, Influicity CEO John Davids and Client Service Coordinator Mackenzie Brown host our community event about how to know if influencer marketing is working for your business. So I wanted to kick this session off. I want to just look at how we actually evaluate each point in the influencer marketing stack. So if you're thinking about awareness, engagement, purchase intent, sales lift, and loyalty, how do you actually say, what should I be looking for to measure the return on investment that I'm making? So at the very top of the stack, we have awareness. And in that case, we're looking at things like impressions and reach. How is the influencer marketing performing on those very top line metrics? And we could be talking about impressions of a photo on Instagram or views of a video on YouTube or plays on TikTok or stories or whatever it is you're doing. How are we actually measuring on impressions and reach? And of course, that would include plays, of course, if it's a video. On engagement, we're looking at things such as likes, comments, and shares. Also, saves. On some platforms, you have saves. And essentially, we're trying to say, okay, of the people that are seeing this, how many are actually taking action? And there's going to be a pretty big jump here. And the reason is because on most platforms these days, the content is is forced to. It's not like you have the option to view it or not view it. So a lot of the awareness metrics, impressions, and reach are effectively going to be everybody, everybody that you reach, everyone that the platform wants to see that piece of content. But engagement is kind of the first much more deep indicator of interest because it's someone actually responding to it. And sometimes people ask, like, what's the engagement rate? We used to say 2%. That was kind of our benchmark. Oh, you should see about 2%. Anything more than that's pretty good. Even better, rather. That's actually gone down over time. And it's gone down for a few reasons. A, accounts have gotten much larger. So there's a lot of people... Like back in the day, if you had a million or 2 million followers or subscribers on YouTube, that was really big. Now there are people on YouTube with like 10 million subscribers I've never even heard of. So because audiences have gotten so much bigger, especially you know in the world of TikTok, it's like many, many millions. You know, People you, you never heard of have 500,000 followers. Engagement goes down because there's simply too many people to see every single post. And so even if you have a post that does well, it might only get liked by 0.5% or 1% of your followers. But that's still pretty good, again, depending on how big you are and, uh, and what platform you're on. So that's just my little spiel on engagement rates. Purchase intent. So we're looking at things like web traffic, hang time, conversion. So essentially, what we're trying to say here is of the people that saw this thing and engaged with it, how many of them are likely to make a purchase now or in the future? Now, one big caveat I'll mention about purchase intent is that that differs very much across B2B versus B2C. So in B2C, because the purchase windows are so frequent, people are basically always in market to buy a B2C product. If you're talking about a can of Coke or a service that you maybe like a coffee or something that you buy every single day, your purchase intent and those signals can be seen very quickly because the window is always open. It's very different with B2B and high ticket B2C, things like vacations and travel and cars when it comes to consumer. Or if you're selling B2B software, construction material, copper wiring to put into skyscrapers, those things can be much less frequent in terms of how often you're making that purchase. So even if people are interested, we see this all the time with our clients at Influicity, 
marketers are very interested to work with us, but they're not going to make a purchase for nine months. And so you have to look at more than just, are they actually making a purchase? There's all kinds of other signals. And that differs from industry to industry. Sales lift. This one is super simple. Revenue generated. Are you actually making a sale? And then finally, loyalty. All of the above. So loyalty is kind of measured as your really true fans or your really true customers, the ones that become basically advocates for you. They start telling their friends, they start posting about you on social media, they start talking about you on TikTok and leaving positive reviews on Yelp and on Google. So that's kind of all of the above when it comes to loyalty. So let me go to the next slide. This is the, the last slide in the pyramid. And this is the dollar amounts. So awareness. What do we actually look at from an awareness standpoint? We're looking at an eight to a nineteen dollars CPM. That's a typical cost per thousand impressions for popular turnkey packages. So, just so you know, this pricing or these benchmarks are from Influicity's own pricing. This is how we kind of price out what different influencer campaigns should cost. Not that they do cost that, but that's what the value is. So, an eight to nineteen dollars CPM for the awareness metric. If you are paying. CPM for your influencer campaigns. You are either in a very, very niche category where influencers charge an arm and a leg, and that exists. We see that. Or you're simply overpaying. Or you have absolutely no idea what your CPM is. And when you do the math, you say, Oh my goodness, why are we paying so much? So I would say 8 to $19 CPM is where we generally fall. The lower CPM numbers or the lower CPM dollars means that it's a very broad category like beauty, fashion, lots of influencers, lots of customers. You're not going to pay as much. $19 CPM could be for something like a credit card application or a mortgage application or B2B or enterprise software. You get to pay a higher dollar amount because there are fewer influencers and fewer customers. And then again, we do get into much higher CPMs as you get more and more niche. The copper wiring example, we had a client a little while ago that was selling copper wiring to skyscrapers in New York City and developers all over the world. And they were paying a much higher CPM because there were much fewer influencers that reached those particular buyers. So that's the CPM piece of it. Cost per engagement, $2 to a $7 cost per engagement. That's the typical cost per engagement range for many popular packages. So again, those are likes, comments, shares. If you were to divide up how much am I paying on this campaign versus how much engagement am I getting, you should see about a 2 to $7 cost per engagement. Cost per click, $0.90 cents up to about $4. And again, it can be higher, but that's a good range. If you are trying to get clicks on something that is very, very easy to get clicks on, like, hey, we're giving away a $1,000 trip and all you have to do is enter your email, you're going to get a lot of clicks on that, which is good. If you're giving away makeup, if you're giving away any kind of fun consumer good, or if you're just entering a contest, you know, enter a contest to win tickets to the next, you know, the the pink concert at Madison Square Garden. Okay, you're going to get a lot of clicks on that if you're targeting the right audience. Something where you might have to pay a lot more for clicks. Again, a mortgage application, a credit card application. Apply for a credit card at Capital One. You're going to have to pay more for each click. But that's okay because again, your costs, your expectations there are going to be quite a bit higher anyhow. And the final one, cost per acquisition. This is the hardest one of all because it really, really depends on what you're selling. So the CPA could be anywhere from 20 bucks to 90 bucks. I'll go again to my credit card example, which I've used a few times. So if you're trying to get credit card applications to come in the door, 
you might be on the higher end of that. If you're trying to sell something that's super inexpensive and fun and really socially native, you might be paying a lot less for that for every customer. So that's sort of a range that tells you what you should be paying at each level of the stack. I wouldn't take this as gospel. Again, depends on really what you're selling. But hopefully, this gives you a nice idea of how at least we think about influencer ROI and how you can do it for yourself. All right, I'm going to take a, a sip of water here, uh, Mac, while <laughs> while you take over for a little bit. So let me pose a question. We we got a bunch of questions beforehand, and I want to get to those right now. Let's start off with the question about influencer software. So somebody had written in asking about influencer software that might tell you if influencers are inflating their numbers. And I looked around. I actually couldn't find anything reliable that I wanted to share with you guys today. I know you took a look, Mac. You said last time we talked, you couldn't find anything. But any thoughts about how you would tell if an influencer is maybe inflating their numbers or not being totally honest? I feel like sometimes you can see some like potential, like I guess, bots in the comments. That's, I feel like, always a telltale sign. But yeah, like John and I were saying, we couldn't find anything. I know there's tools and whatnot to buy followers, but in terms of engagement and whatnot, like, it's it's a little more tricky. I think there would just be a couple bots within the comments because those are the bot followers speaking on those videos. I'm trying to think what else. Well, one thing I'll add to that. So bot bot comments are a really big one. People that mm-hmm. if you look at their comments and they have one word cute or just thumbs up or cool, that's a pretty yeah. obvious telltale sign. Another one on that whole on that same bot line is bot followers. So if you click on the followers on just, you know, pick a random sample of 10 followers and you just click on them. And if they have zero followers and they have, let's say, no profile photo, no yeah. posts, uh, those are uh, those are signs too <laughs> that, they, that yeah. they're just fake people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. Exactly what you said. The one word answers are pretty, uh, pretty key in telling, okay, this is definitely not a real person. <laughs> definitely a yeah. bot. How often do you come across Mac profiles? Because you do a ton of influencer searches for our clients. How often do you come across people that look legit, but then you dig a level deeper and they're not? Honestly, quite often. I feel like there's a few signs that you can tell. Like, I feel like some, like obviously matching their following to their views or engagement. So you can kind of tell sometimes like the bigger the number and like less engagement numbers, it can get a little sketchy. And they're not totally like, I guess, legit. Again, the comment thing I think is huge. I look at people's comments quite often. And you'll be able to tell too. I, a nice one I like to do if someone, if you're looking for someone legit and like with high engagement is a lot of other influencers will be commenting on their content, which is nice to see. And then you can kind of tell, okay, this person is in the industry, like is in the realm, is in the influencer world. You know, that's someone that would be like nice to work with and is going to get some high numbers. Yeah. And just on that note, if you see influencers who are engaging with other influencers and vice versa, that's usually a good sign. Sometimes people will say there's this thing called... And there's different words for it. I've heard engagement circles or engagement pods where influencers will intentionally comment on each other's posts to try to rack up... you know, like. Sort of, you you comment for me, I'll comment for you, and we'll, we'll get the other algorithms to like us both. And some people look at that and they say, "Oh, well, that's really like not a a good thing to do because you're gaming the system." I actually disagree. I think that's a very smart thing to do, and I think as long as you're doing it in a way that is 
honest. You're not like you're not trying to game the system in a way that is inauthentic. So I'm not just gonna again mm-hmm. go to your post and and jack up, you know, write things like cute. But I'm an influencer and I'm commenting on your post and I'm saying, oh, this is really insightful. You know, I have a similar thought. Here's my thought. That's fine. And the idea that, oh, but you're just doing that to get more followers or to get more views. Yeah, but all of us are doing everything to get more followers and more views every day. So it's yeah. not like there's anything so unique about that. It just happens to be really effective. Mm-hmm. And regardless, still, like if they're commenting like, oh, I have a suit by this brand, like you're still talking about the brand in the end. Like we're still kind of like firing comments around whatever brand it may be. So yeah, I think I know what brand you're talking about when you said yeah. suit. <laughs> because we <laughs> yeah, had do. this. Definitely do. <laughs> we had this. So why don't we talk about that? Let's not name the client, okay. but we had this one client that we worked with, and it was it was a, a menswear company. And so we we had these influencers basically trying on the suits and, and showcasing the suits. And then what happened was we started to notice something interesting in the comments. What what did we see, Mac? Yeah, I think it was when we were like finalizing it and doing like our final report. We were like going through the comments and I like always screenshot and share with the client and like slowly, but surely we were like, wait a minute, even though like not looking for a blue check mark, but half these people had about 20 K up. And we were like, wait, these guys are pretty big. Like we have a lot of big names commenting on this menswear line and, and like talking about it and asking like more details on like the material and all that. So we were pleasantly surprised because it's one of those things that it kind of like you don't think to look for right off the bat. If you don't see someone with a blue check mark, it doesn't mean that their audience and them are influential in some sense. Absolutely. And that's going to become yeah. even harder when Meta introduces blue checks <laughs> by subscription and the blue check yeah. means nothing. <laughs> yeah, fair um, enough. <laughs> yeah. But no, but but that's a good point. What we noticed was that these influencers that we had hired and paid to be a part of this were getting a lot of other influencers to comment and basically jack up the views. And we weren't paying those other influencers. And I don't even know, by the way, I'm not sure if you ever found this out. I don't know if those were engagement pods. I think those influencers genuinely just wanted to comment on the content. I think I agree too, because it was all based in the same area as well. So it's like, obviously they know who this person is. They've probably been to a couple influencer events with them. So I was like, I don't think it's a pod. I think it's just like pretty authentic and just kind of helping and hyping that other influencer up essentially. Yeah. Absolutely. For everyone tuned in, if you have questions, please drop them in the Q&A area. I'm going to get to more questions right now that came in ahead of time, but we will take questions in real time. And uh, we're going to try to stump Mac today. I want to see if we can, oh, no. <laughs> if we can ask something <laughs> we can't answer. We'll see. What are the qualitative and quantitative things you look for in success? So I've got a couple here, but uh, do you want to take this one first? Anything qualitative or quantitative that you look for, Mac? I feel like for quantitative, every like when dealing with clients, everyone wants the numbers. They want to see like millions and millions of views, which is great. Like everyone does. But I feel obviously I think a little bit more qualitative is important when picking influencers, especially. Like I always say, I prefer working with micro or nano because one, their audience isn't normally who you're looking for. It's like, say, let's like a makeup or lifestyle influencer. Half of those people will be in that realm and they're following that person for a reason. So on a qualitative standpoint, what you really want to see, and I'll just, I'll go back to Max's point about micro, it's easier with micro versus macro. Micro influencers are folks, again, different on different platforms. Let's just say under 25,000 followers on their platform. Those people tend to have much more truly engaged fans. And the reason is 
because when you are an early follower of somebody and you there's not really a bandwagon to jump onto that means you genuinely are interested in what they in what they have to say i remember when i was building my audience on linkedin when my first like i don't know what i'm at now but it's 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 a high number but when i first started the first 5 or 10,000 people that followed me they really really loved what i was putting out there because it wasn't like everyone was following me and I was just someone to follow. It was like, oh, I really like this post. I'm going to follow this person, even though nobody else is. It's not like a cool thing to do, right? It's not like following uh, a Demelio sister. And so what it makes me think around the micro side is that there's a bit of a higher expectation almost that people are going to know the micro influencer, are going to have a closer relationship with them. They're going to feel like they're buddies. Maybe they've actually DM'd because micro influencers, if you message them, oftentimes they'll DM you back because it's not like they're getting so many DMs. And so we want to see more engagement there because that would make sense versus someone who's got 2 million followers and they don't, you know, they, they've been posting, people are following them now because they're just cool and not because they necessarily love their content. Did you want to add anything, Mac? No, yeah, I totally agree. It's almost just like they look at the bigger names as like more glamorous and, and like catchy and whatever, but it's like the numbers cannot like, yeah, it's growth and you love seeing a big number, but they engage in, and you're not getting the same kind of the same deal. Yeah. And they also serve <laughs> a different purpose. A macro influence yeah. with a lot of followers is really meant to create buzz and meant to mm-hmm. create shares and, and you know have a higher impact. You're not necessarily looking for anybody to be engaging with them one by one. It's like it's the difference between running a local ad in a particular city and running a Super Bowl ad. Like they serve very different purposes. Do you want to create a bang or do you want to really speak to a tiny community? Yeah, totally Um, agree. Okay, let's get to the next one. Are there any misconceptions that clients have about what is or is not working? So does a client ever say to you like, oh, this looks like it's not working when really it is, or you you mm-hmm. see positive signals where they don't see positive signals, and then vice versa, where they see something's working and you know you know to yourself, that's ah, not really working. I yeah. got a couple, but you can take it first. Yeah. So I think just recently we worked with a client and it's funny how clients want lots of... It was a TikTok campaign, but lots of the content to be scripted. It's like, Oh, I want them to use a voiceover. I want them to do ABC, da 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 da. And we always put through content for approval by the client. And I had one influencer not use a voiceover, just use music. And it was very, it was great content still. But they were like, well, this is like, they don't even show this. They don't talk about this, ABC. And I was like, but if you look at their profile, this is what works for them. And this is their aesthetic, not necessarily a voiceover or flashing this like flashing this is gonna make or break what's gonna happen and it ended up like that influence like i kind of pushed for this influencer a little bit more so because i was like her content matches her aesthetic this is what does well for her page this is what her audience gravitates towards and engages with and it did hit some pretty high numbers that i was like okay nice (laughs) like this is what i this is what i wanted just to kind of show that like you don't have to have like a fully scripted scripted content essentially because it's one not going to be a fun authentic and based off the influencers you're picking you have to keep in mind that all of their content is going to be different and you might like one influencer's content better than the other just because they're saying your brand name more so yeah so i'll, I'll just paraphrase because I, I i know exactly which client you're talking about here. 
having a vision in your mind, I'm speaking from a client's perspective right now, having a vision of your mind of this is what my content should look like is not the right way to go into an influencer campaign because the right way to do it is I want my content to look exactly like this person always makes content. And if it looks different, A, it's going to stand out like a sore thumb. You don't know if it's going to work because like it's mm-hmm. unproven at that point. I don't know. Is this is are you going to take one concept and put it into into an influencer that's never done it before? You want to make yourself the guinea pig on this piece of content? I would yeah. just trust what they've done for the last five years and do the same thing. And then if you have a vision for how your content should look, that should be your content on your social channels, on your brand channels, not on the influencer channels. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, it's just funny because you do have to kind of persuade the client being like, no, 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 this is going to like, don't worry. Like it's going to, it's going to perform like, yeah, it's just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's our job. It's funny. One more, yeah. one more point I'll make about what you're talking about. In this particular case, the client, who's by the way a wonderful client, and not, nothing yeah. to say, just just making a, a critique about this one point, is they were looking at the length of the content. So it was like, oh, this piece of content is only yeah. whatever nine seconds, and it was a TikTok. And my my question was like, how long should it be? What is it going to be better if it's eleven seconds? I mean, they they hit every single point. It looks just like all the other content they make, and of course, in the end, it performed great. But the client was looking at some arbitrary point oh it's only nine seconds as though that was a negative yeah i for i actually forgot about the length um yeah they were very a little hung up on the length it's like oh well, it just seems a little short it's kind of weird right and i was like no but it still hits everything that like was in the creative brief that we wanted to serve and yeah yeah and the, the, the ironic part about that mac is i bet i bet it took the influencer a long time to make it that succinct the first probably like 25 seconds and it was too clunky yeah. and they had to yeah. Yeah. Oh, I I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Influicity. Since 2015, we've been building brand communities that drive revenue. First, we did it through influencers. Then we added podcasts. Today, we work with world-class brands to build, optimize, and run breakthrough programs that create and capture demand. It's time to stop renting your influence and start owning it. Learn more at Influicity.com. Do clients ever do anything that actually inhibits success? So we kind of just touched on this. So anything... So this... I mean, we we have a lot of clients obviously tuning into this call and not necessarily our clients, but brand managers and CMOs at different companies. So what's something... What's a piece of advice that you would give or that you've seen where when a client does X, it actually maybe hurts or when a client does Y, it helps? Any, Any tips you have? I think in terms of helps, communication is key. So I send over briefs and whatnot. And just like, if they want something included, like I've run into things in the past being like, oh, this wasn't included, ABC, like just ensuring that like me, the client, and then the influencer, because I'm like kind of the middleman, they outline exactly what needs to be said within my, like my brief that I send over. Because we have run into things where it's like, oh, this hashtag is wrong or this tag is wrong, stuff like that. It seems kind of simple and like a duh. Like, duh, like you should add this. But that's like one thing that is a bigger like roadblock than you would think. Are you saying that, just to be clear, are you saying that it's wrong, it was wrong at the beginning or they just changed their minds? Kind of a little bit of both, including, let's say, like a logo at the end of a TikTok. It's like, Uh oh, well, like we think we want that in there now. Like, and then just kind of giving them like, it's tough. Yeah, it's just... It, they change yeah. their minds a little bit. I think as content is coming in and they're like, oh, well, we could do this better. We could do that, which is fine. Like we can always tweak 
content and whatnot. But I think making it clear right off the bat, just so as we're going through influencers and their content, we don't have too many roadblocks. Another thing too, I think is just getting a really good feel of what kind of influencer they're wanting. So ensuring me that like they want to hit these all demographics to make sure that content is like performing well and they get the message across. Because if there's an influencer and they make content, they're like, oh, well, this is going against everything that we stand, like whatever it may be. Again, it's another robust that we run into. So I think having, being on the same page, because we've run into things where it's like, they think this person's going to do really, really well and fits their profile amazing. But then we kind of go back and forth a bit and they realize, oh, maybe like you should be the one searching for these influencers because it seems like you know what's going on. I know, I know what you're saying. You, you've had instances <laughs> I can think about where the client has come to us with, let's say, five recommendations, which we've then gone off and secured these, these influencers. And then the content comes in and the client says, well, none of this content is what I wanted. But the content looks exactly like everything else those influencers have made. And so yeah. the question is, well, were the influencers selected incorrectly? Or, or have you changed your mind here? And listen, this, this makes sense. You know, I think something I've always said is influencer selection is 90% of the success of an influencer campaign. And the reason is simple. If the campaign is done right and managed correctly, what the influencer makes for you as the brand is going to be exactly what they make all the time. And so mm -hmm. it's not rocket science. All you have to do is look at everything they've made and say to yourself, is this exactly what I want? And if the answer is yes, great, go for it. If it's not what you want, then just go for a different influencer. It's much easier to find a different influencer than it is to get a, an existing influencer to change what they do. Changed hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, no, I've also had, like even when we're starting a campaign, clients will come in with like five huge names right off the bat being like, can we secure some of these people? Like blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's see what we can do. But I know those are ideal, but that's like, they give me an idea of what style influencer they want. But I'm like, realistically being within budget and this person has millions and millions of followers and you want 10 influencers on this, it's going to be a little tricky to secure some of those top dogs. But it's, yeah. it's just funny because it's like, you think the millions and millions of follower ones would do super great. But I've said this again, micro and nano sometimes perform even better in the end and they get the message across a little bit. Absolutely. And I've seen this in our decks and the decks get better and better every single week. The number of smaller influencers and mid-tier influencers that I've seen being introduced into our proposals mm -hmm. versus just the obvious big ones. Like five years ago, when Influicity was doing proposals, it would be like the same rinse and repeat influencers in every single deck. And that was a yeah. few things. A, there just weren't as many influencers and as many platforms. And it wasn't as obvious that you should go micro. You know, people just kind of wanted to stick to the big proven names. Now, there are so many people creating content. There are so many different platforms. Within each category, there are more people than you would think. And so it just mm -hmm. gives so much freedom. It's a great time to be a marketer. It's probably not yeah. as good of a time to be an influencer today as it was <laughs> five years ago. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, because there's just been this uh, surge in supply. And so you have way more influencers that you're competing with if you are an influencer. And we mm -hmm. could do a whole other community event on how to make a living as an influencer because it's definitely changed. But if you're a brand, just remember that you definitely have options and never fall in love with an influencer because there's always another one next door. It's not like, yeah. 
you know, it's, it's not like you need to work with this person because if, if you like this person a lot, there's probably 10 others that we can find you that serve the exact same purpose. One more thing I'll add on here, which is an interesting change that I've seen in my time in the business, which is about eight years or so, is that there's been a real, a real movement from transactional influencer relationships to sustaining influencer relationships. And there's a few reasons for that. The idea that you should work with somebody one time and then find somebody else or you know, run a six-week influencer campaign and then stop. There's a movement now towards, hey, let's, let's have an influencer program that runs continuously. And every month, we will maybe switch out the bottom 10% for some new influencers and you know, try out some new people. But the idea of being able to build on the influencer relationship really makes this all much easier because you don't have to worry about putting all your eggs on this one campaign and say, okay, I hope this works. It's like, listen, if this works, great. If it doesn't, we've learned a whole bunch of stuff to get it a little better next month. And Mm -hmm. your costs come down, your influencer options go up, your creative gets way better. And after six months or eight months, you've got an influencer powerhouse that's actually driving revenue. And going back to what I was saying about all those benchmarks at the beginning, the $8 CPM and the $2 CPE, those get lower and lower and lower if you run a, a continuous influencer campaign versus one that kind of starts and stops all the time. Let me get to the next question here. Okay. What does success look like on TikTok versus Instagram versus YouTube? So the trifecta here, the uh, micro video trifecta, TikTok, of course, Instagram Reels, and YouTube Shorts. Let's stick with those for now. So any differences or any differences in the kind of content that works or the kind of influencers you see or anything like that, Mac? I will say TikTok's still number one. I feel like everyone, everyone is quoting an audio or is referencing a TikTok. And like literally my thumb will go to my TikTok app before Instagram and YouTube. Like it's just, it just does. It's like gravity. It just goes there. It it knows. It knows what to do. And uh, I don't know. I just think a lot, like still, I think lots of Instagram reels, it's still essentially rinse and repeating what's trending or going on on TikTok. But success, I think on those platforms, it's funny, like for influencers I've worked with and like campaigns I've worked on, even building like influencer success, when my friends start to send me like my own campaign, cause they don't really, and I'm like, oh, I was like, I actually worked with, like I did this. And they're like, wait, <laughs> what? And it's like influences that we like, will see in where we're from. I see lots of them walking like downtown, like where we're from. And it's just funny. Cause you're like, I know exactly who you are. I've actually emailed you, but you have no idea who I am. But right. seeing their content, just like, hitting those demos. Like I know a lot of my friends for one of my campaigns we did. It's funny because like it was a food centered campaign and we're all like pretty big foodies. They were like sending it back and forth. And I was like, Oh, keep it up guys. Like this is so funny hitting the engagement for me. (laughs) Yeah. 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 We've got a pretty big food client. It's a software company in the restaurant space. And they also have a consumer facing reservation app, I guess you would call it. Mm -hmm. And so being in the foodie space, obviously that content travels really well on TikTok yeah. and Instagram and creating content. That's actually kind of a, an interesting campaign to talk about. So we can get into it a little bit. I'll set you up mm. and you can, you can get into kind of what worked there because there's a whole bunch of stuff that worked and we're talking about influencer success. So let's, let's, let's use a case study. Yeah. So this is a, a campaign where we're basically trying to drive awareness to a, a restaurant reservation app. And we're doing that by having influencers use the app, make reservations. But the 
influencer content wasn't about the reservation app. It was about the food. And that's really something that I think people miss a lot of the time. They want to talk about their product instead of the benefit or the lifestyle around their product. And I think this campaign yeah. worked really well because we were talking about the thing everyone cared about, which was food at good restaurants. 100%. And like a huge... Th- like It's just like, yeah, you're showing a brief, quick, I booked on this. But it's like... Once they show like the atmosphere of the restaurant, the drinks, the food, you're totally right. It's the content people are looking for, but they're like, I'm a big, like, I feel like everyone now, you're a big reservation person. So I'm like, oh, like now I know to book it on there because that's what platform they use instead of the competitors that are within the area. Another thing too that we we added onto that campaign was kind of a brand ambassador program. So there was like a link that viewers can go to and essentially apply to get a $200 meal gift card. And they would do the same thing that we ended up hiring these influencers to do. So it's kind of like an extended realm of like producing content for this for this company, which was also really great because some of the this would definitely be like smaller base like profiles, but they're people that you know they're foodies. They care about food and that kind of content style that they're producing. So yeah, it was kind of a cool opportunity to do. That's a really interesting extension that you just referenced. Yeah. So just to kind of um, unpack that a little bit for the audience here. So what we were basically doing was we were paying influencers to go make a reservation on this reservation app and then go to the restaurant, dine there and document the whole experience for TikTok, for Instagram or for their platform. And then as an extension of that, we were saying, Hey, if you want to get a gift card to use on this app and go to a restaurant and do the same thing, we're not going to pay you. Like obviously we're not paying these people, but we will give you a gift card and, and you've got to use this app. And then we were able to see all the people that were actually signing up on the app mm-hmm. and you know asking for the card. And that was a really good signal. Hey, are people actually seeing this content, watching it till the end, and then taking yeah. the action, which is, hey, come here to get your own gift card. So that's another tactic you can use to see if your campaigns are working. Try to get the influencers community, try to activate them in some way. Get a gift card, sign up here, do something. Even if it's not a monetary, they're not buying anything from you. It's only taking a second of their time. That's a really good signal to say, hey, is this influencer tactic working or is it totally falling flat? Yeah. No, 100%. Yeah. So it was a good little campaign. I don't know. (laughs) It's it's still going. It's still still going. Well, it's still going. Yeah. Yeah. How do you build on influencer success? So we, we kind of talked about the idea of running a continual influencer program. It's probably the easiest way to build on success. But in terms of building on success, let's say just in a company... So obviously, working with the same influencers over and over, assuming they're doing well, you will get better each time. But what about more, more big, uh, high level? How does a company get really good at doing influencer marketing? Have you noticed anything with our clients that are more experienced that they just they've worked the muscle and so they do things better? Um, I'll use one. You can think for a second. So yeah. there's one thing I can think of, which is when you're working with somebody that is new to the influencer space, they they think about it more in terms of like I'm making a commercial or I'm making a piece of creative. And the key term here is I'm making. I'm making this. And I feel like marketers that are really good at working with influencers or creators in general are much better at stepping away, at giving a brief mm-hmm. and then trusting the process and then you know giving feedback or giving tips and advice, but trying not to actually shape the output of the content. And that's really the important thing because you want to put your fingerprint, you want to put your stamp on it, you want to make you want to feel like you're doing your job. I'm using yeah. here. 
But at the end of the day, the best thing for the campaign, the best thing for the business or for the product is that it looks and feels like you had nothing to do with it. And the influencer just kind of did it on their own. And so marketers that where I can tell, oh, you've done this before, that this, this ain't your first rodeo, it's because they're the ones who are actually taking a bit more of a hands-off approach and the content looks and yeah. feels way better. Now that you yeah, you now that you say that, I I'm thinking of a couple clients that I'm like, they literally just let us do our thing. And like again, I keep going back to approval processes with clients and like all the little tweaks. And even if it's like a one word off, I'm like, yeah, you just have to trust the process and let them be authentic. And that those campaigns tend to do like 10 times better than some of the other ones. So you're yeah, yeah, you're totally right there. Yeah. Let's talk about downside for a second, because I know we're, we're being very rosy and we've been doing this a long time. So we can sort of see the roadblocks and we, we know what, what to look for, you know, so things don't go terribly wrong. But let's say you're a marketer tuning in and you're doing it yourself. You're, you're, this is a DIY project for you. You don't have an agency like Infelicity working on this. What can go wrong? Like, give me your nightmare. Maybe it's not something that's happened at Infelicity, but, but like, what's a nightmare scenario of like an influencer campaign? not working out and maybe damaging or, or being negative to, to the brand. Can you think of anything or have you, have you come across anything? One thing, I guess, if you're doing it yourself and your budget's a little lower, essentially like an influencer ghosting you, if you've maybe already sent them payment, like that's not fun, obviously. <laughs> and yeah, it just sucks. You're just like, I, like, what am I supposed to do? Just keep emailing them. So that's one thing that like, again, it's a reality. It could happen. I feel like lots of the times, again, like influencer marketing and stuff like that is pretty big now. So like people know pe- like you people know this person. And it's like, oh, I've worked with them and they work like this style or stuff like that. So it's it sucks if that happens. But also again, it's like word of mouth gets around to like yeah. <laughs> like just like who who are you working with, who's really awesome to work with, or who's a little yeah. different to work with. I don't want to be negative, but you know what I mean? <laughs> it's so funny when you say that because it makes me think like before influencer marketing, I actually have a background working in music. And so I worked with bands and I you know, booked acts at nightclubs and stuff. And I remember if you're booking a band at a nightclub, what are you worried about? I'm worried about like, are they going to show up? Are they yeah. all going to be drunk and high? Are they going to actually yeah. backstage? Like, are they going to be are they going to be random people backstage that are just like causing yeah. a ruckus? So it's that kind of stuff in the real world and in the influencer world. Maybe it's not that bad, but no. it does happen. Like people just ghost you. People, you know, students have exams and they don't get back to you for three weeks, and then the campaign's over. So yeah. behind the scenes, that definitely can happen. Yeah. No, for sure. That's like one of the not major things, but it's something again, it's like kind of reality that that can happen. So I I would say on the front end, like how can things go wrong on the front end? There are situations where if you let an influencer create content for your brand, and you don't have proper review and approval processes in place, the content can essentially be good, but do nothing Mm -hmm. for your brand. So as an example, like they simply don't, they, they fail to mention your, your call to action. They fail to mention your brand promise, whatever it is you want to say. They don't get the right messaging out there. What we've seen... So this is something that happened with Influicity. This has gone back a few years. So we had a client that was a hair care brand. And it was really, really important. And I hope they're not listening in now because I, I don't want to butcher this. But you had the line was salon-like quality. So... You can't say you get salon quality results. You have to say you get salon-like quality results. And that like was so important 
I think there there are lawyers. I think there was even like an FDA investigation because like you can't, it's like false advertising. You can't say you get salon results because you don't. So they had to say salon like results. And we had influencers that of course were being like, oh guys, it's just like I went to a salon. And we were going, no, 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 you can't say that. It's almost like I like (laughs) the like it was key. Yeah, exactly. So the reason I say that is kind of a funny example, but if you are selling something like medical devices, you know, a product that is regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, something where there's actually laws and consequences, I'm I'm thinking like health, finance, crypto, if there's any crypto companies left, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. That was that was a joke, by the way. Don't 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 act on that one. But the point is, you need to be more careful when there's actually little fine-tuned items that need to go a certain way. It's different if you're selling a candy bar or like, you know, whatever, enterprise software where there's not really a downside. But when there's legalities and regulatory issues involved, you do need to be more specific because that's a different different animal altogether. Let's wrap up here, Mac, to, uh, on that note, talking about finance, because we do a lot in finance with banks and all yeah. kinds of institutions. Um, where there there are regulations involved. So, are there any? Is there anything we do? I'm thinking of like uh, you know the the banking client. Is there anything we do to make sure that their influencer content? I guess we don't really do. Do we do just regular influencer content for them, or is it all pretty managed and it's all it's not like regular influencers? It's pretty managed. We had one one little area where we did end up getting a couple TikTokers on board to talk about something. But it honestly, it is pretty managed. They have people in mind that they like to work with. I think I joined when we were working with two pretty big names, and it was almost like it was a rinse and repeat process for like five months or something like that, where they promoted certain partners at the bank. But yeah, I'd say it's pretty managed on that front. Yeah, in general, if we're working with a bank or a medical company, which are two categories we work with pretty heavily. There's going to be a different process. It's going to be more of a fine-tuned process. So I, you know, I don't get into the details now because frankly, I don't know if it's of interest to anybody here. But there's there's kind of a whole different playbook that we use if we need to make sure, hey, like never say this or only say this, or you're going to get your you know hand slapped if you do that. And the other thing, again, I won't get into too much detail on it, but disclosures are super important too. So it's very important. We've actually had clients say to us like, oh, we want to w- work with this influencer and pay them, but we don't want them to say that we paid them. And it's like, are you crazy? <laughs> Do you want to get <laughs> so yeah. influencer disclosure is super important as well. Okay. Well, this was a great session. Hopefully you all enjoyed it. We do this every other Thursday, so watch out for our emails. And of course, the Modern Marketing Podcast is out now. Search up Modern Marketing for uh, discussions with some of the top marketers in the world today. And these sessions also go on that podcast feed a few weeks after we do them. I'm John Davids at Infelicity. Mackenzie Brown, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. (laughs) And we'll talk to y'all next time. Awesome. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to Modern Marketing. This podcast is brought to you by Influicity, empowering marketers to build customer communities that drive revenue. We create massive demand via social, influencer, content, paid media, and of course, podcast. Learn more at Influicity.com.